Paul prayed that we would live for Jesus in a worthy manner. That's really what the crux of his prayer was for the Colossians. After he talked to them about their faith, he then introduced this, and there were several things that we've already gone through. We're not going to go through all of those things, but I do want to review a little bit from last week. And by the way, um, it just feels funny saying this. You know, in your bulletin, if you look down, there is a place where you can go on uh, and 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 hear previous messages. And I, I, it's, I don't want to be like, I just feel weird saying, okay, so I'm, I'm done with that. But basically, we're in a series. So if you miss something for whatever reason, the point is you can go back and you can listen to that to kind of get, get yourself up to speed. It's not just a standalone message. So that could be helpful for you as we even just kind of connect the dots here. <clears throat> so last week we learned that Paul desired the Colossian church to do several different things with this idea of, of um, uh, living for the Lord in a worthy fashion. He talked about the fact that it wasn't just going to be on their own strength, but that we have uh, the Lord's strength. This is be strengthened by God's power. Amen. And that, that is just an amazing thought in and of itself. And again, we talked about that last week. And what was the purpose of that? So, so, that, we would, so that we would endure patiently. What we talked about there was those two words were actually going together. And Paul has done this already a couple of times in this chapter, where he uses two words that mean similar things to enrich the purpose behind his words. So the idea of enduring is going through situations in life, and the idea of patience there has to do with more relational things, right? And so we need that type of endurance for both of those situations, both both just the things of life and then the people of life, right? Um, and then he says that we are to do that with a joyful thanksgiving. Um, it's It's important for us that we understand that circumstances do not determine uh, the blessings that we can have in Christ. But we can be joyful and thankful in any and all circumstances. Um, and, and that means any and all circumstances. And we can do this because of what God did for us in Christ. And so we concluded last week's message with these three phrases. I'm just going to take them right out of the scriptures. He qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He delivered us from the power of darkness, and he conveyed us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Those are just three significant action words there, qualified, delivered, and conveyed. And it really shows us that our, our faith and what we have was really all about what Christ did for us. It was his credentials that got us the position of being a child of God, not our own. Right? That's literally what that means. And then we were delivered from something, but then we were conveyed to something. And again, I just love the completeness of Scripture. It's not just what we were saved from. It's what we are saved to as well. Okay, So in all of that, um, he just encourages us to live for Christ because of who Christ is. Right, And he continues that thought as we look at things today in Colossians 1. Let me just read for you. <clears throat> Verses 12 through 23, just to, again, give us a, a, a broader look at what we're going to be checking out today. And then from there, we're going to start in verse 15. So verse 12, it says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So again, that's the greater context that we're looking at. So as we look at verse 15, uh, what we want to see here first is that um, as I'm introducing this, let me, just, let me just tell you, we're going to be going through some pretty heavy stuff here. And what, the way I'd like for us to look at this is kind of like snow removal that we've had recently, right? One shovel full at a time. Don't look at the whole driveway. <laughs> right we're gonna we're gonna approach this one show actually is this this phrase what does he christ is the image mean that's kind of an interesting phrase isn't it that he is the image there are two ideas conveyed with the greek word image or icon both were always present although one may be emphasized more than the other when it's used one is representation to be an example or signify something. And the other one is manifestation, to carry the very presence of something. So here's a couple examples. I have a wedding ring on, right? It is a representation of my marriage with my wife. But there is also a manifestation there. If someone were to look at that, they would know that there is someone else with me, so to speak, right? That's what it represents, and that is what is also manifested. It's, it's, it's made clear. Somebody else is in that relationship, right? An idol that someone carves is another example where it symbolizes the presence of that God. There is not only the icon, right, that we think of, the icon, where there is, there is this example of it, but it also is supposed to carry the weight of the God itself, right? So you can actually worship that icon. Not encouraging any of this. I'm just telling you that's an example, okay? But God carefully worded the scriptures. This, is, this has a deeper meaning than just likeness. It is not written in the image of or an image of. Do you notice that? It says he is the image of. Jesus fully represents and expresses or reveals who God is. Fully representing and expressing who God is. Jesus is the image of God. I want to talk about the deity of Christ, not only as far as what was said um, 
uh, well, we're going to look at what Paul says in a couple of other books, but then we're going to move on from that, and we're going to look at what some other authors have said about the deity of Christ. By the way, we could you know, fill our entire time talking about this, but I want us to work through this as I, I believe the author intended. But I, I do want to say, and this one's a little bit lengthy, but I do want us to just take a look at this and see what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commands light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Okay, lots of words there. Big picture is this. Jesus is God. Jesus came to let us know who God was. Philippians 2.6. Who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God. Okay, that word robbery, a little bit interesting there, but the idea is this. It wasn't a crime. There was nothing wrong with it. He wasn't taking anything away from God to say that Jesus was equal with God. Why? Because he is God. Completely and fully. Mark 1.1, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that is a term for deity. Okay? God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Heavenly Father, right? We talk about the Trinity. Well, he's basically saying here, I'm beginning by telling you, I'm writing to you about God the Son. Now, Mark's book, um, as I mentioned last week, goes pretty quickly. It's, it's one of the smaller Gospels. And along with that, he really, Mark is talking about Jesus being a servant. So you don't have the weight of, say, John, where he's talking about Jesus being God. Or Matthew, where his greatest theme is the, 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 the royalty, basically, of Jesus is a king, Right? Uh, for, for Mark, it's more of Jesus as being a servant. And some would then argue and say, uh, Mark diminishes the deity of Christ. And because of that, I just wanted to add, this is just, you know, for variety's sake here, add one more passage. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Okay, are you the son of God? Are you the chosen one, right? Jesus said, I am. Now that in of itself was an expression of deity, right? And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the, with the clouds of heaven. What's he saying? I'm going to come back. But before I do, I'm going to sit down at the right hand at the, at the chosen place next to God the Father, right? So what was he saying? I'm God. And this was one of the most explicit examples of this in the Gospels. Another passage. Very familiar passage, but again, thinking about it in this context of Jesus being God. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Um, just keep in mind that idea of maker, okay? That's, that's coming up pretty soon here. So with all of these different things that we have, what we're seeing here is multiple authors are telling us 
they see Jesus as God. They also record Jesus saying that he is God. We're going to continue. John 1.14, a little bit later on that passage. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then we're going to move on. Oh, and by the way, John 17, if you want us to write a note down there, go home and read John 17. It is just chock full of the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God. It's a beautiful thing. But we just don't have time to go through all of that. Uh, but yes. anyway, and then Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We've already read this, right? But it says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. You see how this is not just a Pauline idea. This idea that, that Jesus is the image of God, that he is the son of God, that he is God himself, it's, it's throughout the New Testament. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, we see this position of glory, this position of deity. So, all of this to say, folks, as we're looking at this, that, that we're not talking just about Jesus being some emanation of God or a likeness of God or anything like that. He is God. When he came to this earth, he was the very presence of God. The word made flesh. The word was God. Okay? I also thought it was interesting, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time on this, but it, he was the image of the invisible God, okay? God is spirit. We know that from the scriptures. Jesus became the God-man. 100% God, 100% man, blows our minds. We don't understand that. But a unique being in all of time and history, right? No one else, only him. Came in the form of a man, but never ceased to be God completely. So as we think about that, and again, he represented God, again, because he was God. When we think about that, then it goes into the next phrase here, okay? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Um, For by him all things were created, verse 16, uh, that are in heaven and earth and so on. And then it says all things were created through him and for him. We're going to get to that. But what I want us to see here next is that not only is Christ God, Christ is creator. Again, we're going from one very powerful phrase to another. So we've taken our first scoop, right? We're going to take our next one here. We're not going to try to plow everything all at once, but we're going to take this one as it goes. So um, let's first answer the question, what does firstborn mean? I mean, we had this, this phrase he is the image of God, and that might have been like, hmm, what is that? Now we're talking, he's firstborn. What does that mean? The word firstborn refers to the firstborn of man and animals. Does that surprise anybody? Right? I am the firstborn from my mom and dad. Some of you may, ha- may be there as well. It's, it's natural, it happens, but there's a second usage that expresses a special relationship with God. 
the idea of firstborn. We're going to look at a couple of these verses here. Exodus, and you understand, I mean, we're going through a lot of verses, so I want to make sure that we can look at these. Exodus 4.22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel my son, my firstborn. Yes, pause for a minute. Was Israel the first nation on earth? No. Does God say that he brings nations into existence? Yeah, he does. He takes credit for that. So what does this mean then? It doesn't mean they're the very first nation. See, he's, we're, we're talking what the United States would call most favored nation status, right? That's what we're talking about. These are his chosen people. It's a special relationship. They're of first primary importance. They're the firstborn. It's a position. It, is not, it does not have to do with heredity. Okay? Here's another one. Psalm 89, verses 26 and 27. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Now, he shall cry to me. Let's define this. This is a psalm about David. And this is the Lord speaking. So he, David, shall cry to me, God, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him. Now, here's God now saying, this is what I'm going to do for him, David. I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, again, we know David wasn't firstborn heredity, right? He didn't come from, he was the last one. He was the runt of the litter, as we say, right? What, what did Samuel say? Do you have any more sons? <laughs> right? Because none of these are fitting the bill for the Lord. Okay? So we know it wasn't because of, of his birth order. We also know that he wasn't the first king. So what does this mean? It has to do with that same thing, a special relationship with me. He is firstborn. He has that position of highest importance. The term firstborn also carries with it the concept of birthright. The firstborn received a double portion of the inheritance and was often the primary family leader. Now, again, that had to do with you being the firstborn of the household. When we take this and we put this into the idea of firstborn as in I am making you primary, I am making you first, then the idea there comes with all the blessings and everything that comes with that. So this is what we see here when we see Christ being firstborn. We'll explain more about this in just a minute. But let's look now. We've already seen John 1. We've already read Hebrews 1. There's some wonderful, beautiful uh, creation passages in there. But I want us to understand that this term is not linking Jesus with creation when we're talking about him being a created being. Rather, it is used to distinguish him from what was created. If Christ was created, then this would be saying that Jesus is firstborn of or first of importance that came from creation, that somehow creation bore him, right? That's really what it would be saying. It would mean that Jesus is primary of all created things. Firstborn used literally does not match here. It has to be 
that more symbolic term as we see God using for Israel and for David. The New King James translates the meaning well by giving the firstborn its proper symbolic meaning and position. And this is why the New King James uses over all creation rather than of. Of is not wrong. It's not a bad translation. But over better communicates the meaning. He is the firstborn in position over all of creation, all created things. Verse 16 clearly states that everything seen and unseen, material and spiritual, were all created by Jesus. John 1 tells us that. Hebrews tells, tells us that. We go back to Genesis. Man was made in our image. All right? Jesus couldn't be the primary creation of what he actually created. Right? It's just that simple. Creation was also made for Christ. That is for his pleasure and for his glory. He can do whatever he desires in and through creation. It is all his, including mankind. Creation also brings glory to his name because his divine attributes are made known through what is created. We see that in Romans. This further clarifies that firstborn here has to do with the special relationship that Christ has with God the Father. We also see here that Christ, it says, is before all things. Now, this, this we can just talk about briefly here, but it basically means that he was before all things in time. We're talking about the pre-existent Christ. So if he was before all things, then he wasn't a part of those things that were created, right? So scriptures here cannot be any more clear that he is first in position. He is the creator of all those things. They're all for his benefit and everything else. And he was before all of those things that were created. I mean, that, that's, it's, it's complete so that there really should be no issue in understanding that Jesus is separate from what he created as far as who he is and what creation is he is not dependent on creation he is not dependent on any aspect of being created he's the I am he simply existed God the Father God the Son God the Spirit an eternal one in three persons that's all the better I can explain it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I'm just telling you. <laughs> all right. So let's move ahead here as Christ the sustainer. And we see this in verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. By the power of Christ, all things consist or hold together. Let's let that sink in for just a minute. This literally means that one microsecond blip where Christ would cease to sustain creation, it would result in immediate chaos and dissolving of all things. Now you think about that. For one millisecond, if God simply took his hands off of creation, it would vaporize. He's holding it all together. Is it sinking in a little bit here, folks? 
He spoke the world into existence and his hand is still on it. We are completely and totally dependent upon him. We need to acknowledge that God has set a course of creation and that God cursed creation along with man. Man fell, but the image of God can still readily be seen in man, right? We can look at people, we can see through the fog the image of God, the character of God placed upon us. In the same way, we, we can uh, see the character of God in creation, even though it has fallen, even though there are diseases and storms and all these other things, we can see the handiwork of God. We can see his glory and his greatness in what he has made. And I know some of you, and I, I, I can't say I totally relate with you, but some of you, you just you love winter. I don't understand. But, you know, you go outside on a day like today, like, isn't it beautiful? All the trees dead? No, no, no. No, no, really. The, the beautiful snow and the landscapes, I get it. And, and, and I don't know what it is, but man, the, even the sunshine is just a little bit different in the wintertime, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool. So actually, it's cold, but you get the idea. So, so the point is, God has the, the, the season set in motion. He has all these different things that, that, that happen. You know, spring comes and all of a sudden you got all these animals and stuff that are doing their thing and there's more of them and, and, and you know, bugs where were they in the wintertime? You might have a few in the house, but they weren't outside, right? And everything, all of a sudden, they're coming to life, and on and it goes. I mean, we have these different seasons. What did God say? I'm going to continue these going. So we see him in all of this. On a practical basis, this should encourage us that the all-powerful Christ, the one who created all things, also sustains all created things by that same power. Mankind and each of us as individuals need to be good stewards of what the Lord has given to us, but we do not have to fear the course of the earth. What's one of the big themes out today, folks? The earth. It's going to be done. It's going to be gone. Something's going to run into us or we're going to destroy it or whatever. That's not what the scriptures tell us. I don't believe that Christ is going to allow sinful man to destroy his world. But it will be recreated someday. So there's a lot going on here, but where does it leave us? We're going to have a, a little bit of a lengthy application time today, but let's be reminded that Paul is reaffirming these things to the Colossian believers because a false teaching was threatening to infiltrate the church. Now, you've heard me say, you've heard me refer to this Colossian heresy. I've said it before a couple times in messages. I'm not teasing you with it, folks. We're going to get there. We're going to get there eventually. But I want it to keep us grounded in the purpose of the book. All right? So I want to refer to it again. Paul continues to lay this groundwork, this groundwork for how he wants to kind of do battle with this heresy, with this false teaching. So let's kind of consider in all of that, the deity of Christ, what, what, what have we learned today? Not that we doubt any of this, but this should confirm in our hearts that Christ is the all-powerful creator and sustainer God. Jesus, as the unique person of the Son of God in the Trinity, also has a very specific role in redemption, which we've already talked about. So this same creator God 
Jesus, is also our Redeemer God. The all-powerful creator is the all-powerful redeemer, all right? It's, it's good for us to understand that relationship. He's not compartmentalized. He's all-powerful in everything that he does. And all of these things ultimately point to the end of verse 18, which says that in all things he, Christ, may have the preeminence. Preeminence simply means that he is first and foremost in all things. Right? He's first. He's the greatest. So when we talk about the idea of creation, Christ has the preeminence. He is not dependent upon creation. He did not come from creation. He made everything. So we can look at this and we can say, wow, this, this is a, a nice study of the doctrine of Christ, but what does this mean for my everyday living? And let's, let's be honest, for some, the knock-on doctrine is, right, it's, it's, it's up here. Well, the Bible's full of it. It probably is supposed to translate into more than just up here, head knowledge, right? I think one of the things that we sometimes fall into, and I don't think we intend to do it, but sometimes we might see Jesus as a lesser member of the Trinity, you know, here's the Father, here's the Son, right? The Father sent the Son, the Son sent the Spirit, right? So there's this hierarchy, and somehow Jesus is lesser. Now, I, I know that we don't intend to do that, but sometimes I, I think it kind of happens that way. We cannot confuse role with character, right? When we see the character of Christ, which includes his abilities, which includes who he is as far as him being all-powerful, right? We, we can't, based upon these verses, we can't argue the fact that he's God completely and fully. All those verses that we looked at. So it's good for us to kind of just recalibrate our minds, help us understand there's a difference between role and character. The same one who holds the universe together holds us in his hand. Jesus Christ, the Son, is the all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere-present, self-existent God. He did humble himself and veiled his glory in the flesh, but when Christ came to earth, he came as fully God. Colossians 2.9, For in him Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I think that explains it better than anything else I could say, Right? Now, we're jumping ahead to Colossians. You know, we'll, we'll get there too, all right? But listen, this is what Paul is explaining here, right? So let's put a couple of these concepts together. It should help us get a fuller understanding of practical living here. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I say turn, I have it up here. Then God said, let us make man in our image. We already know that that represents the Trinity. That represents God the Son in here too. According to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, I didn't need to include verse 27, but we need to understand something. He created male and female in his image. 
So whenever you see man there, it is generic. This is explicitly telling us that we are equal before God, that God created us, both genders, in his image, right? Now let's think about the importance of that for a minute. According to this passage, man and woman, each one of us, were created in the image of God, and according to what we have studied, Christ is the image of God. Man fell. God provided redemption in Christ. Now the redeemed are tasked to be like Jesus. So, so let's, let's, let's look at this, okay? Jesus, the image, the exact likeness of God, because he is God, created us in his image, after his likeness, right? He then came and really took on, if you could say, our image, the other part, the, the, the physical part. We fell when he came as the perfect God-man. He laid his life down for us. Look at what Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says. For whom he did for no, he also predestined, he's talking about us, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So folks, here's a takeaway for us today. Jesus Christ is not in as like God, he is God. That's how he came, that's how he lived, that's how he created, that's how he holds everything together. We are to now, hopefully, I'm talking to everybody here, in our rescued, saved state, we are trying to then continue that redemptive process, working out our salvation to be like Jesus. So to be fully human as God created us is to conform ourselves to the image of Christ. You get that? What we're really doing is, is we're trying to get back as close to Genesis as we can before the fall. Is that going to happen this side of heaven? No. But that's the goal. To be like the one who is God. To do as best we can to live up to that image. The very image. The exact representation. The complete manifestation of who God is. The one who came and gave it all for us. Now we in turn need to be like him. The character and works of Christ should be an ever-present motivator for faithfulness. God himself, we just said that the very creator and ruler of all things came into this world to give his life so that we could live, so that he could give life to you and to me. Christ is worthy. 
He's worthy of our love, our devotion, and our obedience simply because of his character, just because of who he is. And we should also love and serve him because of what Christ has done for us. The scriptures give us both. Therefore, both, not an either or, will inspire us to live a worthy life. We see him for who he is, and we understand and recognize him for what he has done. Those two things are what are going to inspire us. To be like Jesus. To conform to his image and to glorify him through who we are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we understand very clearly that when we're talking about what Christ has done for us, it's not anything that we could have done for ourselves. And when we're talking about who Christ is, we're talking about our God. We're talking about the God of the universe. And yet, just as the Lord talked about a special people and even a special individual, Christ is ultimately that preeminent one. And we thank you that that one who holds the earth together, the one who created all things, the one who is over all things, the one who has that special place left all of that for us and as Christ did that for us it was absolutely completely out of love and so today Lord we celebrate the great salvation that we have but we also celebrate the great Savior our creator, our sustainer, and our Lord. And as we consider some of these things that on the surface might look like problematic phrases, we thank you that Paul was preparing these people because there was just stuff out there that was wrong. Lord, may we have that same preparation. May we have these same things permeate our minds so that we understand that when this philosophy or that religion or whatever comes along, if it doesn't square with Christ being God, the preeminent Lord of this world, of this universe, if it diverges from that, Lord, I pray that we will reject it and that we will as lovingly as we can explain to others what the truth is. Not our truth, yours. Christ coming into this world, the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you. We thank you for his greatness. And we thank you so much for your goodness and your patience in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.